Maybe I should explain my PowerPoint first of all, when it comes up on screen. <laughs> Some of you might recognise uh, the, the familiar, miserable, uh, doer face of Victor Meldrew. And uh, if you remember, he was a character from a, a BBC comedy, uh, One Foot in the Grave. You know, and, and I was reflecting on the, the passage that we're looking at today. He seemed like an appropriate uh, caricature to consider ourselves against in the light of what Paul has to say in Galatians uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. You know, the comedy character could hardly bear with anyone. And we need to ask ourselves, are we bearing up one another or barely bearing at all? Hence the title, Bearing One Another. And I hope it will be in a positive light. <laughs> but with that, we could turn to Galatians chapter 6. And Jude, would you kindly be our Bible monitor? Galatians chapter 6, and it's uh, reading verses 1 to 10. I could do the one myself. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Jude. And if you've got one of these Bibles, you'll find it on page uh, 1172. So reading... Galatians chapter 6 through to verses 1 to 10. And it reads, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who has received instruction in a word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, and whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Amen. So let's consider the passage then, bearing up one another. You know, just by way of explanation, the, the emphasis of Galatians, it was seen Paul exhorting the church that he established in Galatia, to stand true to the faith, stand true to the gospel that he preached to them, that he received from the Lord. But news has come to him that a group of false teachers has followed after him and in a sense have infiltrated the church in a way and were now promoting a gospel 
but with amendments. And throughout most of Paul's letter, he's been writing to denounce the false teachers and the emphasis on their strict observance of the Mosaic law and its traditions as necessary towards salvation and fellowship with God. But in that, if we ever thought that doctrinal errors was just a thing for academics or flights of fancy and the unknown, we'd be wrong because the seed sown by their teachings was having and had a very real relational impact on the Christian community. In a sense, what we believe and what we sow, and it will provide a harvest, either for good or for bad. So as we move into chapter 6, we see Paul drawing everything in a sense that he's spoken about already and a very practical application of how we're to live for friendship and fellowship, or in this case for lack of fellowship, it's been affected by the influence of these teachers. We read in verses 1 to 5 that how Paul instructs that we are, how we relate to one another, particularly under the circumstances when either a brother or a sister in faith has fallen into sin. You know, when Paul refers to sin in this passage, he uses a very particular word. In, in the Greek, it's uh, paraptoma, and it literally means to, to slip up, uh, to stumble in error, or to make a mistake. It isn't the sense of uh, someone who's fallen a premeditated, uh, a desire to fulfill and to follow a, a sinful lifestyle that implies the one like in a moment of madness or weakness does something that is contrary to the spirit. By way of inspiration, I'm not in any sense trying to uh, gloss over or underplay sin. But the issue here is, isn't the crime it's, uh, in a sense, the rehabilitation, if you like, of the offender back into the Christian community. And how that happens or doesn't happen is more of a reflection of the, the wider Christian community surrounding that person. So, in a sense, Paul isn't writing to the, the sinner. He's writing to those who might stand over the sinner in judgment. You see, in this passage, Paul is addressing the fruit of the Judaizers teaching in this community because there's a very real possibility that there's been almost like a, a kind of Pharisaic spirit has crept into the fellowship. Moral guardians are now prowling the church looking for people to condemn. If the rule of law has come into their midst then there will be certainly a lack of grace. There will be a quickness to condemn, to divide. And the fellowship is at risk of being torn asunder by a haughty spirit, if you like. A spirit that seeks to build itself up on the failures of others. And in a sense, this isn't an unusual problem to have in the church. Indeed, wherever you find people, it's never far away. You know, in a sense, it's it's as common as the, the common cold. It thrives where people are. And before you realize it, everyone has caught a whiff of it. And as I say, Christians can be just as susceptible to it 
as anyone else. You know, and it's not difficult to draw an illustration to mind. Husband and wives do it all the time. I can recall a few occasions <laughs> when me and Jude have had discussions <laughs> whereby I've attempted to justify my words and, and my actions uh, on account of her words and her actions. Well, you said this, but I only said this because you said this and I, and you did this. I try to excuse my conduct on the, on the insolence of somebody else's. <laughs> it's wonderful when you've got the microphone, isn't it? <laughs> you know, but it's true, we're ever ready to put ourselves on a pedestal above others. And it's usually above those that we're most in contact with and already in relationship with. You know, it's a sad uh, image, but it seems to be a predominant image that's banded around these days. That the church tends to get a negative kind of profile. You know, I would disagree to the extent of this. I was talking with Don the other night, and I think to a certain degree it's become something of an urban myth, but it still exists. And that the church can have this persona sometimes, this appearance to people on the outside particularly. But mud sticks. And sometimes it's difficult to wash it off. As I say, some stains seem to last forever. But I think it was that reputation that compelled Philip Yancey to write his, what was considered a classic now, What's So Amazing About Grace? Some of you might well have read it. Some of you might have heard of it, at least. If you haven't read it, it's a book where he's rediscovering, in a sense, bringing back to the forefront of the church, grace, 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 and grace again. And in its opening chapter, he writes about a young woman who's in dire straits, who gets herself into addiction and debt, which then leads to prostitution. And he talks in it that somebody suggested to her about approaching the church for help. And she wretched at the, even the thought of that. She wretched at the thought of coming to the church for help for fear of being made to feel worse about herself than she already did. You know, it, it's a marked contrast between the way that sometimes people per perception of what the church is like the actual perception of what Jesus is like. You know, it might surprise us even when we consider how Jesus dealt with and encountered people who are trapped by sin. I mean, when you look through the Gospels, you see evidence of Jesus' compassion and his gentleness when he encountered people whose lives had been entangled by sin. And if you consider the women who had been caught in adultery, in a sense, she was brought very publicly before Jesus. In a sense, she probably would have been humiliated. She may well have been stripped to the waist in front of an angry mob. And I'm sure they were standing there with her stones and rocks ready to throw her. But the question is, why did they, why did they bring her to Jesus? Has she been caught in adultery? Well, get, the sentence had already been passed. Why, why did they need to bring her before Jesus? They'd already made up their mind. I think it's because 
they had suspicions about Jesus. You see, he talks grace and forgiveness. He talks about peace. He associates with the likes of these people far too often. But yet he says that he's come to fulfill the law. Well, let's see how he deals with this one then. In a sense, this woman had now become an object. She was no longer a person to this mob. In a sense, she'd become like a tool to present before Jesus, almost as a conundrum to him, to trip him up. If he was really true to the law, then we have no hesitation in throwing a rock at this woman. But as Jesus has always acts in a way that often people least expect. And we can read it in John 8, verses 1 to 11. He listened to them. He listened to them, constantly questioned them, yet he did not respond. But it tells us that he simply began writing in the sand, in the dirt. It doesn't tell us what he wrote, but we can only speculate. I wonder if perhaps he was writing perhaps out the commandments of the law, the Ten Commandments, if you like. Or maybe it was a phrase or something from the Torah. There was something, certainly something. Jesus was doing something in the sand. And they were probably watching it. And something was probably going to percolate in their minds as they were seeing what Jesus was writing. But then he complimented with what he said. That whoever is not guilty of sin can be the first one to cast a stone. And then we see from that that gradually, one by one, they begin to drift away. Silently, they just walk away. One of the ways because is they listened to what Jesus had said. He pierced them to the heart, and they became conscious and convicted of their own sin. Perhaps they had never been caught in the act. Perhaps they had never been guilty of this woman's particular sin. But they were guilty, nonetheless. But in that moment, Jesus could have proved a point himself. There was always something in what Jesus said or the way that he did something that always pointed to the fact that he was righteous, he was holy. You know, at that moment, he could have used it as a perfect opportunity and picked up a stone and thrown it because he was without sin. But he didn't. He said, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. You know, the strange thing is that this woman wasn't the exception in Jesus' behavior. She was a person being restored by Jesus. And this was Jesus' consistent approach to the undesirables in a sense. He came to heal, he came to restore, and how they needed it. And in a sense, we're no different today. And it makes sense, therefore, that when Paul says, though you who are spiritual should restore that one with a spirit of gentleness. If we have the spirit of Christ, then there's no arguing about it then. Be as Christ, be Christ. We should be more ready to restore than to condemn. And restore is a positive term. It's to heal, it's to bind up, to set a bone right, if you like. 
And as often as the church has been portrayed as a place of condemnation, not just towards the outside world, but to those within us. But we are to be different. We are to be different from the world, fulfilling the law of Christ, the law of Christ, which is basically to love one another as he loved us. And that's not to get confused with like turning a blind eye to sin or to wrong, but it's to recognize that our, our chief objective is to rescue the one who's fallen from sin. Not to push them further down into it. You know, some of you might remember Andy. He was a member of City Church quite a few years ago. And uh, it's, a, it's a tragic story in some sense, but it's also encouraging as well. Caroline may have referred to it a couple of weeks ago. But Andy was a, was a member of City Church. And he'd had his troubles. He had his burdens. You know, and his life had previously been caught in a cycle of addiction and theft imprisonment and so on and so on but he came to Christ but the old cycle still came back occasionally and I'd say some years ago he passed away but his funeral service became a telling moment for one man who is now a member of City Church and a Christian as well Dave Morrison Dave was a, was a friend of Andy's but the turning point, the instrument, if you like, that God used for Dave's conversion, if you like, was the first occasion was Andy's funeral service. Because when Dave came, he was speechless. He, he couldn't fathom as to how such an unlikely group of people and so many people could love somebody like Andy. It, it, it just did by comprehension. that people could love him and love him in such a way. And it made Dave, Dave realize there's something, there's something here that doesn't exist outside. It doesn't exist in the world. Because those that knew Andy, stood with him, struggled with him, encouraged him, lifted him up when he stumbled, they loved him. That's the law of Christ. That, should be, that we should love one another as he loved us. And in doing so, as Jesus said himself, the world will know that we are his disciples. Let's consider the, 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 the following verses. Now indeed my next point. Look in the mirror regularly. <laughs> it reads in verse 3, If anyone thinks they are something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. <laughs> Question is, what is Paul referring to here? Well, if we follow the context of the passage, we should bear in mind that he's still referring to the preceding verses. Remember that the, the Pharisaic mind that has crept into the community, hierarchies are now emerging amongst the believers. I'm holier than you. Well, I'm from the line of David, don't you know? I'm a, I've made a Nazarene vow. Well, I've been circumcised. Well, I've been circumcised twice. <laughs> do, you, 
do you get the nonsense of it? You know, I'm exaggerating it to a point. <laughs> yeah. I've never tried it. <laughs> I want to try it. <laughs> but it comes back to that parable that Jesus told. You know, about the Pharisee and the tax collector. One lifts himself up in comparison to someone else, whilst the other has an honest and a true reflection of himself. It was the tax collector who had a better understanding of himself before God than the Pharisee. And we do well to remember that, that when the spirit of judgment begins to creep into our lives, that we are all, and we were, all tax collectors. Just that sometimes we forget that. You know, when I was preparing my art school portfolio, this was many, 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 many moons ago when I was at school, you know, I became quite adapt at um, drawing a caricature of myself. Um, but it only became that way. It, it became easy because of having done previous endless self-portraits at school and at home. You know, to the extent that I could capture my likeness, if you like, with but a few strokes of the pen. Similarly, we should be able to do the same with our character. Know your character. Know its attractive qualities. But also recognize your less attractive ones as well. Know your strengths. But know your weaknesses. You know, in addition to that, in the art class I had the benefit of an art teacher, a tutor, who would um, gently encourage me, keep me going in the right direction so I was progressing and getting better and better. And it's something that we advocate here at City Church as well, that if you haven't done so already, that you should find somebody that you can confide in, a confidant, who can, in a sense, keep you uh, accountable. You know, keep us, help one another. It's not part of that bearing up one another up. Bearing one another up. In the times we fail, but also to help us from falling as well. Have someone that you can confide in and to help you to restrain those tendencies that you'd like to see less of in your life, but also to encourage more of the ones you would like to see. Because it's a false premise to compare ourselves to our neighbor. Because as Paul says, you know, Christ is the measure. The spirit who lives in us is the one who declares us righteous. No one else, nor anything on our part. Like Paul, if we boast, we should then boast in Christ. We're responsible for ourselves. You know, we cannot live out a life of faith in constant comparison to other people. We must examine ourselves before God, not anyone else. It's in our responsibility to ensure our conduct, conduct before God. But this doesn't contradict what Paul said earlier. We are to support one another in our weaknesses, but it's never to take the responsibility for somebody's faith, for somebody else's conduct. You know, in a sense, that would be to reduce a person or even yourself to nothing more than a glove puppet or a muppet, <laughs> maybe a more apt term. And nobody wants to be called a muppet, <laughs> do they? Rightly examine yourself before God. 
Ask yourself, am I living to the extent that God wants me to live? Am I living the life I've been called to live? Am I pursuing God with all my heart and every fiber of my being? Or am I being a bit of a sloth? Sloth. A sloth. Difference interpretation here. I say sloth. She says sloth. It's a slow animal. You know, the idea of living in community seems to be like a novel idea these days. Though some are, are unconscious of it and would even deny or refute or consciously being part of any kind of community. But there's that universal kind of causality between people groups. And even as we meet here this morning, how you behave in the context of a community does have a knock-on effect on somebody else. For either good or for either bad, iron does sharpen iron. You know, it's been suggested that in verse 6 there is something of that kind of reciprocal nature in it. If we consider that the false teachers have been allowed to have influence in this community, we have to ask what happened to those who were given charge of teaching this community before then? Is it possible that they'd been neglected to a degree? It was a principle that Jesus established very early on in his ministry that, you know, those who teach the world are to be free to do so. But in order to do that, they are to be supported financially. If the teachers in Galatians had been neglected, then the teaching community had been eroded in a sense. In a sense that they then become open to the whimsical teachings or heretical teachings of every kind under the sun. Is that what happened in Galatia? It's possible. I mean, I can only speak on behalf of myself and City Church and the site pastors, but, you know, we are blessed by the offerings of this church that enables us to do what we've been called to do. You know, it makes me think that when I was first called into the ministry, I did struggle with the idea of working for the church, of being supported by the church. And it was almost like I felt as if I was owned, if you like, you know, by the church. But that was to put ownership in the wrong hands, in a sense. Rather, I first and foremost, I belong to God, but I have an obligation to you. As indeed anyone who speaks here on a Sunday morning has an obligation, and that is to rightly teach the Word of God. And I try, <laughs> and I'll keep trying to do that. But you see, there's that reciprocal nature in it. It also is just that sense of being simply sharing blessings with each other, encouragement with one another. As you might be encouraged by whatever's said here, or a small group, or whatever the context. Therefore, the one who teaches, the one who speaks, is encouraged when it's actually taken on board and acted upon. So, there's a tip. If you're right, encourage me. Listen to what I say and just go and do it. <laughs> <laughs> you, know. you know, to close, I'd make a, a final reference to our friend, Victor Meldrew. You know, the title of the series was One Foot in the Grave. Well, I would say we should have both feet in the grave. 
You know, in the remaining verse, he says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You know, in the remaining verses, Paul goes on to deliver a fundamental law, if you like, of the universe. And that is that God cannot be mocked. He cannot be hoodwinked. He cannot be foiled by some legal loophole. Cause and effect are ever at work, either in this life or the next. What we sow into will manifest itself in some shape or form. Deeds sown in wickedness will return an unpleasant harvest. Every son under heaven may be forgiven, but the temporal consequences, the effects of sin are often inescapable. Bitterness, enmity, strife, grief, and guilt are often the offspring of a life sown in the flesh. Therefore, Paul urges us to sow into the Spirit which leads to eternal life. Not just communion with God, but with one another. Certainly there will be no condemnation or cause for regret for those who live by way of the Spirit. And it comes back to that point I made a couple of weeks ago, that if we rightly love God, we will rightly love other people. And against that, there's no law. There's no condemnation or nemesis waiting somewhere down the line to return like for like, only blessing awaits. But it can be hard at times. And I think Paul acknowledges this when he encourages us to no, don't become weary in doing good. You know, he should know he was something of an expert, an authority even. He endured insult. He endured injury, isolation, shipwreck, beating, stoning, and finally execution himself. But he never faltered. Why is that? Why did he persevere, continue, when others fell by the wayside? You know, I think Paul understood cause and effect. The only cause and effect that he put his mind onto, that he was set on, was the death and the resurrection of Christ and its effect on him. He knew that his life would be spent, that in a sense it would be poured out, it would be used. And Jesus did forewarn us, you know, anyone who would follow after him, that there would be a cross for each and every one of us to carry. You know, I was thinking on Jamie's baptism last week, and I was wondering if it would have been appropriate to give him two planks of wood after the baptism. But it's true. We all have a cross. A cross to carry. It's there for every one of us. But we have to remember that the cross preceded the resurrection. And indeed, there wouldn't have been any resurrection if there hadn't been a cross. And so it's the same for us. Paul was sown in into the Spirit. 
He was sown for an eternal harvest, not just for temporal praise or applause because he never got it. And I think his life was summed up in that verse that he wrote in Galatians 2.20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You know, if there was any, if there was one verse in all the scripture that I would implore you, you know, to, to make your own, it would be that one. It's such a weight and a depth that we can't comprehend. But if I could live according to one verse, it would be that, that I might really live for Christ. Because everything else then would pale in significance. I could endure. I could endure. And I will endure. And I would encourage you, if you remember anything this morning, remember that verse. Make it your own.